Welcome to Giving, where I explore the strategies used by some of today's most important leaders. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Michelle Kidd Lee. Michelle is the Chief Innovation Officer at CAA, where she defines the strategy for Hollywood's most important talent agency. But Michelle is unlike most people in Hollywood. She really cares. Before taking on a broader role as CIO, Michelle was instrumental in transforming Hollywood's approach to philanthropy. Her work with the CAA Foundation leverages Hollywood's star power to raise awareness and funds for some of the biggest challenges facing our society. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start by taking it way back. Um, You grew up in a small town in Maine, and you've talked a little bit about how that community has inspired your approach. What were some examples of the way that giving back, uh, the role giving back played in your life uh, growing up? Well, first of all, I'd say that um, growing up in a really small town has incredible advantages. The first one is that you get to know your neighbors because you rely on one another. Um, Growing up in Maine, as you said, in a very rural place, when there would be extreme weather, everyone pitched in to help each other. If there was a tragedy where a family's house caught fire and all of a sudden they were without shelter, the community would rally and participate. And I think if you grew up in a small town, you know what I'm talking about because at the local uh, market, there would always be a, um, a can collecting um, collecting change or donations for anyone in the community that had a, a tragedy or a difficulty come their way. Or there would be a bean supper or some sort of fundraiser for one thing or another, pancake breakfast, where people were always pitching in to help one another out. So when you grow up with that as a, um, as a daily part of your life, you just are hardwired to believe that we're all responsible for each other. So on top of that, both of my parents um, are teachers. My mother was a middle school French teacher for 35 years, and my father was head of math and science for um, the community college. And they were the first in their families to even go to college. So they went from their parents who were uh, in a very blue-collar existence to becoming um, professionals themselves. And when you grow up with parents of teachers, um, with that parents that are teachers, you also have that constant value system reinforced every day, which is all kids are all of our responsibility, that every student in their class, every kid in their school was their responsibility because we're part of this village that is responsible for growing all young people. And so I think the combination of those factors um, has left an indelible mark about how I certainly want to walk through the world and how I'm trying to raise my children as well. You expanded from that that small community, that small village to much more of a, a global village as you started your career. You went overseas to, to help with a refugee crisis in Bosnia. How did that influence your work? I think the example of going to work in refugee camps uh, is the is sort of like the extension of feeling so passionately about something that I didn't understand. And I, I kept watching um, in the news what was happening on the other side of the planet, and I couldn't understand why we weren't paying attention. 
And so because I didn't understand it, I felt like I had to go there to see firsthand how I could help. And what we did there was really to try to create infrastructure for the volunteers that were mostly college kids that were coming from all over Europe um, and living inside refugee camps, providing human services to um, to the refugees and, and really trying to create some sense of, of normalcy. So there were knitting circles for the grandmothers and there was kindergarten for the little children and for the older men and the little boys, we had engineering workshops where they could go and, and try and do, uh, do things with their hands. All of this was meant to give stimulating work and learning that could take place in something that felt productive in a place that was just ravaged by, by war. And my, my experience in that was to try to take whatever I had um, and bring it to that moment in, in being of service. And so where I could sort of go in and, and help the volunteers organize themselves, then that was the best place that I could, that I could share. That's such powerful work. You came back and sort of upped the amount of leverage you had by, by joining CAA and doing and starting the CAA Foundation. Can you share what the CAA Foundation is? Sure. So it's sort of taking a similar um, philosophy, which is how do we take the power and the reach uh, and the influence of popular culture and, uh, and put that to the greatest social impact possible? And we do that in a variety of different ways. Sometimes that's working with the employees of Creative Artists Agency and, and helping connect them to communities all over the globe. Um, where they work and live, and helping specifically with um, with young people and with uh, education, making sure that all kids have access to great education. But we also work with all of our clients and what their both philanthropical and, and social uh, impact goals are for them as as individuals. And so we'll connect them with causes and issues with um, people who are doing like-minded work to make sure that all of the great efforts underway are met with um, as much energy and, uh, and optimism as possible. And what we've found over the years is that the, the power and the light um, of the attention of the world really does follow a lot of popular culture. And so if we can make sure that the great athlete has everything that they need to be most helpful to the people that they're trying to serve or that the actor, writer, or director has access to um, some of the great minds and, uh, and nonprofit leaders that are in the sectors that they're passionate about, then the combination of these forces is something pretty powerful. Yeah. And so what are some examples of ways that you've sort of leveraged popular culture to, to shine that light? I would say that... Um, you know, starting years and years ago, helping to connect Angelina Jolie with the United Nations Human Rights Commissioner was really helpful for me, very satisfying for me, because I had just been coming from working with refugees and then to see Angelina be able to take her platform of celebrity and put it towards the use of driving more attention to the refugee crisis that was a that was a great full circle moment for me, you know. Most recently, we had um, JJ Watt, the football player, who um, has been doing remarkable work in the city of Houston, which has been just absolutely ravaged by both the hurricane and then 
the terrible school shootings um, and everything in between where we can be of service to to bringing people together um, and seeing that work be magnified incredibly by the fact that we have clients who are willing to use their platform to bring so many others along for the work. It's so interesting seeing the sort of dichotomy of you going to this refugee camp and doing such important work as one person. Can you talk about what happens when Angelina Jolie adds a platform to it? What's what's the impact of that? <laughs> well, uh, dramatic. Uh, it is it is at a dramatic moment when uh, one of the world's biggest uh, film stars decides that they are going to use the attention that is constantly drawn on them and share that light with those who don't normally get attention. And so I think, um, I think it's, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to see how artists and athletes, creatives really figure out now both how to create art that is, um, that, that shares more of the human story. Um, but then also use the, uh, the attention that's naturally gathered on them by um, by the media to um, to share that with others as well. I think really what the the point now is is that people are seeing our, their role as being part of a global community now more than ever, and that it is going back to that small town in Maine um, when somebody has a fire in their house, we all are impacted. When children are not getting what they need all of society suffers. And so I think we're in a, um, we're in a new time as a, as a collective culture. And um, we've never had more problems um, and we've never had more opportunities for solution. So speaking of a, a new time, you've been really instrumental in creating the Time's Up organization. How did that start? What was sort of the, the seed and how did it, how did it grow? What, what was your role in that? Well, back in October uh, of 2017, the atrocities of Harvey Weinstein became public. And, uh, and there were a group of us in the entertainment industry that were absolutely focused on making sure that this crisis did not go uh, unattended. And so a group of women, uh, we gathered here in our office specifically to design opportunity for um, for us to come together and then uh, figure out what it is that we could best bring to bear. Ultimately, that became Time's Up. And our true north uh, of a mission is to create safety, equality, and dignity in the workplace for women of all kinds. And that has been um, an incredible journey in just a, a short period of time where we started the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund to make sure that those who did not have the resources or the means to be able to hire great lawyers or great communication specialists were given the, the same opportunities. So we have women and men also all over the country who have applied for assistance. And in the first 60 days, we were able to raise almost $22 million. And we, so far, we've had over 3,000 people ask for help. So there's no shortage of help needed. And, um, and we're very much focused on and making sure again, that we work collectively to make sure that all people um, have 
a safe place to work so that they can uh, provide for themselves and for their families. And how did you decide to broaden the scope outside of just Hollywood in terms of the the impact of the Legal Defense Fund and the work you're doing rather than just focusing on sort of the smaller sliver of the real problem that exists in Hollywood? Well, we were given a beautiful gift um, by the farm workers and led by Monica Ramirez, uh, who wrote the most eloquent letter of support um, to us as sisters and said they stood in solidarity with us in that moment of pure grace on their part was the fuel that clarified very, uh, very early on that we needed to see all sisters in this um, in this movement as being linked and not ranked, and so it's been it's been a wonderful experience to have uh, all different kinds of women coming together, united in this same message of solidarity. How how what was the process like, sort of creating the movement? Because it it it's really is a movement in terms of the number of people involved. How. You sort of had this initial meeting at CAA, and then where did it where did it go from there? So it was it was really interesting because it was very democratic um, in the design phase. It was we were still pretty small, um, and had a, a representative from a lot of different areas of the entertainment industry uh, together as as representing. We were also intersectional at our at our core, meaning that half the women in the room were women of color and we were, um, and our LGBTQ community was, uh, was accurately represented in, in percentage. And so we made sure, at, we, I will say we, where we did not have in our very first meeting, we did not have um, representatives with, uh, with physical disabilities, but we quickly uh, resolved that. But that's a really core uh, piece of our, not only our intention, but our foundation. I would say it's the cornerstone of the foundation of, of Time's Up, which is we are intersectional by design and meant to, uh, to, to have that carry out across our platform. So because we were democratic, um, we had an open floor uh, where everyone took responsibility and that you, everyone brought their ideas to the table as long as, and if you had an idea, it was your responsibility to execute on it. And so uh, it was a, it was a really, it's been a very, very exceptional time. We had, we had a couple of people that are uh, fantastic philanthropists decide very early on that they would be financially supportive in that sort of seed grant money that is all the difference between whether you can go on or things stop. And, uh, and then we put, started putting some infrastructure around where, um, where we needed help most. So we hired a handful of folks to do uh, administration and structure, but it's still been a very exciting and robust process where anyone who wants to be a part of Time's Up is, is not only welcome, but can be a leader very quickly. One of the things that you've done besides just raise $22 million in a really short period of time is draw a lot of attention to the issue by having having women wear black at, at the Golden Globes. How did you come up with that idea and, and what was the implementation like? And then how does that speak to the bigger arc that I'm seeing and that you haven't just given money to organizations, but truly driven a lot of attention? 
Well, I think, um, well, first of all, it wasn't my idea. It was one of the, uh, one of the founders ideas to wear, uh, to wear black to the Golden Globes. And that actually came out in the very first meeting as well. Um, there was a clear understanding where each of the women present understood what their, um, what their superpower was, and they weren't afraid to use it. So if, uh, if you were an actress who had been to multiple award shows, you knew the power of doing something collectively and the fact that there would be so many cameras on site that it would be, uh, it would be in our best interest to be incredibly organized so that we could take advantage of, um, of that moment and be unified in, in every way. Shifting gears a little bit, I'd love to understand why it makes sense for CAA to do this work. I think I'll start with sort of like what the in- initial inspiration was. And, um, you know, I, I was the first person that started at what was the new company in 1995. And the founders of CAA had all left to go do other things. And then the next um, leadership group came into being. Uh, they were, you know, they were about in their 30s, in their mid-30s and young and scrappy and needed to, um, you know, work really, really hard at the time when the rest of the industry thought that the company could could fold. Um, they were very visionary people in that early, in those early days. And they just decided that they, um, their business philosophy was going to be a little bit different than the people who came before them. And so Richard Lovett, who was the president of the company, uh, who at 35 years old was, you know, had barely run a meeting, never mind run a company. Uh, he was the one that recruited me and said, you know, let's, let's just go figure what this could be. And so his vision was to take someone from the nonprofit community because I had just come from being in the refugee camps. And he said, you know, I think you're supposed to be here and I think you're supposed to be helping us figure out how to make something new. So it was a real vision on his part for what was possible. And he said, if we start a foundation, then the others will follow. If we offer this for our employees, then others will do the same. And if we offer this service to our clients, it will become part of what everyone believes is just the right thing to do. And, um, and so that's pretty much how it worked. I was in my 20s, and, um, and I thought that it was an incredible opportunity to, to see where something like this could go. And 23 years later, it seems to be going okay. Yeah, and, and did the, the other agencies follow with foundations? And They did. They did. That's, that's so cool. And is, the, is there a business value or is it the right thing to do or is it a little of both? Uh, I definitely think it's both. I mean, I think what we've seen is, um, and, and this is, you know, let me just back up. In 1995, there was no such thing as cause-related marketing or pro-social branding. There was no terminology for social impact. There was, uh, you know, there was no CSR departments in companies. That didn't exist. What happened for the most part, you had some, you know, large corporations that had foundations and, you know, still do today, like giant beverage companies who have foundations, their average, you know, donation is around between ten and $25,000 per beneficiary. But that's not where you're going to go make, you know, huge strides. You'll make huge strides if you're working with their marketing budgets, as an example. In our case, we saw our value as being, um, 
as being being able to harness this power that we that we know because we we live it in the entertainment space it is good business because now that popular culture has helped shift how the culture now accepts what it means to be good meaning you know certainly the you know young people are being very discriminating about where they want to work or what products they want to buy or what services they want to hire for based on the social impact of those companies on society at large and that's because years and years ago when the culture was shifting away from being um a very uh me-centric view of the world, um, it became much more important for all people to realize, oh, this is what it means to be living a good life. I, I want to sign up for that. So it's all interrelated. The um, It is good for business and it is the right thing to do. And what I've learned over time is how much business drivers um, can actually have this level of impact. And so to your earliest point about philanthropy, philanthropy is wildly important because it can act as the, um, as the, you know, as the seedling for a lot of uh, fantastic change. And philanthropy often can see, oh, here is an opportunity of need that desperately needs to be to be looked at. Um, but we need to have these other factors. Uh, we need business and we need government and we need, you know, individuals and collective groups of people all coming together, working in concert so that we move these massive changes. It's the leverage of all pieces that um, that's what drives behavioral change. And then that behavioral change becomes policy change and the policy change in changing laws. Amen. Amen. I love that. Um, so my last question is, so what is the meeting like where you sit across from a celebrity and pitch them on philanthropy, on telling someone who's just made a bunch of money, how, why should they give back? What, what do you tell them? Well, first of all, I would never, uh, I wouldn't have that meeting where I would tell anybody anything. Right. Um, the first part is that I will, um, I'm very uh, cognizant of is about listening to where the where they feel um, most passion uh, around what it is that they what change do they want to see in the world and then where might they see themselves being a part of that and I think where we can best serve is then uh, to be a conduit for for that activity so we can connect people to whether it's the NGO leaders or the public policy folks or the people in, in business and social impact, all of whom are interested in like-minded pieces. And hopefully bringing those folks together allows everybody to, to move significantly forward. But I'd like to add one more thing, just, um, and it's a, little, it's a little picadillo of mine, but I wanted to share it with you. I never use the term giving back. And the reason for that is I actually believe it's far more um, important in, in my um, approach is to reconfigure the language that we use. Um, and what I would, what some people would call charity, I would call investment. And, um, and that investment in community is 
is hopefully where there's the return on investment, which then gets circulated back into community, is, is the hope of, of where philanthropy can lead. And instead of giving back, I would say share. That there is an, for those that have abundance, the idea is to share what we have for with one another so that others can then share the same because we all have different gifts and we all have different things that we can share with one another. And so if we're seen in that way of being linked and not ranked, as Gloria Steinem says, I believe wholeheartedly that that's when this intersectionality that I discussed before gives us all the chance, no matter what our backgrounds, no matter what our financial or uh, access or reach or opportunity is, we will all share in each other's gifts once we realize that we all have have something to contribute. And I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much for, for sharing such a powerful message. It was, it, was, it was really, really a wonderful conversation. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening. Giving is brought to you by Lemon Tree Foods and produced by Alexandra De Palma. Special thanks to Anna Koppelman. See you next week.